Welcome to A Pair of Bookends, the book club you can carry anywhere. We are your hosts and hopefully your new bookish pals. I'm Hannah MacDonald. And I'm Lydia Clare. It's so great to have you back for another installment in our debut Spotlight series, where we shine the light on the freshest new authors and their work. Today we go back in time to ancient Greece to meet Clytemnestra, a mother, a monarch and a murderer, in an epic historical retelling of one of history's forgotten female icons. Costanza Casati is a freelance journalist and screenwriter. Born in Texas in 1995, she then grew up in a village near Milan in Italy. She attended a classical liceo where she studied ancient Greek and ancient Greek literature for five years. Costanza is a graduate of the prestigious Warwick Writing MA programme where she studied under writer Sarah Moss. Costanza's short stories have appeared in Nothing in the Rule Book and have been broadcast on Raw 1251 Warwick Radio. And she's written and produced documentaries for Italian television. She's here joining us today about her debut novel, Clytemnestra, which was published by Michael Joseph, an imprint of Penguin, on the 2nd of March. So, Costanza, welcome to A Pair of Bookends. Thank you. I'm so, so excited to be here. Oh, we're I'm so excited to have you. I was about to say, I'm, we're so, you don't understand how excited I am to actually talk to you. I feel like I've been living in your book. I feel like I'm partly in your brain right now because of how much I've loved this book. Yeah, it's amazing and kind of creepy as well, but I love it. Oh, yeah. Right, hold on, but I'm going for it. I would just like to ask you before we get into the book, what are you currently reading? That's a great question. I am currently reading three things. I actually have them here. I'm reading Cleopatra and Frankenstein by Coco Mellors. I think you probably have seen this because it's everywhere. Yes. It was recently Watterson's book of the month. It's amazing. It's a love story between Cleo, who's a 24 year old woman, and Frank, who's 20 years older than her. They marry kind of impulsively because Cleo needs a visa and it's just their love story but also it's about how their love story affects all the people around them and that's my favorite part of the novel and I think Pandora Sykes described it as very tender very funny but also quite heartwarming and I think that's just the perfect way of describing the book I'm also reading Jenny Saint's new uh, retelling it's called Atalanta and it's about the only female Argonaut I think I just love the way she writes about ancient Greece she has a very very uh, different way from my own writing I would say but it's just very mythical rather than historical fiction it works so well and then I am reading the scripts of Fleabag oh lovely yeah. also where have you got that cover from because that oh, is it was, beautiful it was a gift from a friend and I'm enjoying this so much honestly just like it's just like watching the tv series it's amazing I highly recommend it and it's like a master class in writing dialogue it's so good oh I loved Fleabag so much yeah. I need to go rewatch it. Lydia's rewatched it about four times. Yeah. So. <laughs> I've got a good quote to you, quite a bit of those scripts. But yeah, so it's just a masterpiece. In my it opinion. is actually it a, is masterpiece. a masterpiece. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And Costanza, can you join us every week for book club? Because <laughs> that selection of books is probably the best roundup we've had from an author. Oh, I would love that. I would so... love that. That's what I do. Write and talk about books. I, I love it. No social life. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I have friends. <laughs> oh, no, I love it. You are definitely welcome week in, week out with those recommendations. I am waiting for Lydia to read Cleopatra and Frankenstein. Waiting. Literally next. 
Yeah, I'm waiting <laughs> very impatiently. It. I think you will love it. If you like Sally Rooney, you will, will you will love this one. It yeah. has it has its own vice, but it also has some similar things. So it's Lovely. great. And uh, Lydia's a Waterstones bookseller herself, so it's just really yeah. poor effort, Lydia. I am. I am. <laughs> Don't tell my boss that I didn't read the book of the month. <laughs> and I said that it was Waterstones book of the month. I was like, oops. <laughs> You know, you've dropped her in it. No, you've dropped her in it. It's all right, you know, you know. So we are so obviously so pleased to have you and we are having you as part of our debut spotlight series. Now we've been starting off these episodes by asking our authors what your journey has been like into having your debut published. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So I I always find it quite interesting when the authors say that it just happened to them, like writing just happened to them. Because I've always known that I want to be an author like ever since I was old enough to want anything. But it was more of a dream than just like an actual attainable goal. But I grew up in Italy and I think that's also why I just saw it as a kind of dream. So I I had two challenges, I think. One, the actual challenge of getting published, which is (laughs) incredibly hard. And the other was that I was writing in my second language. And it was not necessarily like a challenge in itself because I started writing in Italian when I was really young I was about 11 or 12 and then I switched to English when I moved to England so I was like 18 19 and I was writing in English so I knew that I could do it but I think it was more of a challenge in the sense that I didn't know anyone who was writing in English as like a second language and I think in that respect reading anything that Elif Shafak has ever written has been hugely inspirational for me not only because I'm a huge fan of anything she writes also because she talks a lot about what it means to write in your second language well she writes both both in Turkish and in English, which I think is just phenomenal. Like now, I don't think I could switch back to Italian now, but she, I remember reading an interview of hers where she says that distance sometimes can bring you closer to something, that sometimes when you step out of something, you just see the thing better in a way and I, that really resonated with me and so I think it just gave me a lot of, like seeing someone like her gave me a lot of confidence uh, in terms of actually you know getting an agent and being published but in terms of like with Clytonestra specifically I started writing a book I think six seven years ago now and I was doing my master's and I was doing my master's in creative writing and I had a module that was called historical fiction fictional histories and I started writing Clytonestra story then and then I had I think about like just 50 pages Ages. I knew I wanted it to be a novel, uh, but I had to stop for a while because um, I moved back to Italy for a few years and worked in television as a like producer and freelance screenwriter. And then I wrote most of the novel during lockdown. And then I had this moment when I had to submit to agents and I was like, this is it. This is the moment. Um, I had been rejected before. I was I had been writing like short stories. I had been sending them for like literary competitions, but they most of them got rejected. And I think it's always, I always love when authors talk about rejection because it's such a huge part of our mm-hmm. job and we should just talk about it more and more. But I think being rejected really, well, it didn't really help with my confidence, but I think when you get to that point, when you just keep going, even though you keep getting rejected, it just like it does something to you and it just helps you becoming I don't know just not confident but I don't know more determined in a way and when I started submitting I just to agents I just realized that I didn't know how to pitch my own novel and I mean I did I had done a creative writing course but no one had ever taught me how to submit 
uh, how to write an elevator pitch, which is something that's still incredibly useful to me, or just how to write a synopsis, which is the most traumatizing thing ever. Uh, I mean, <laughs> my book is almost 500 pages and I had to write a one page synopsis. That's just really hard. And so I just took a little course, like an online course uh, from Curtis Brown. Uh, I actually always recommend those courses to anyone who wants to just write novels because they're really, really helpful. And I just learned how to pitch my own novel. And then I submitted to agents and I had like my dream agent which is now she's my actual agent, but at the time I thought she was kind of unattainable. And so she was the last one I actually submitted to because I wanted to have some manuscript requests first. And and then it worked. I got a few rejections, a few manuscript requests, told my now agent <laughs> that I got those requests and she also requested the manuscript and then I just signed with her. But it's been, sometimes people think that because I'm young, this happened very quickly, but it's been a long time coming. <laughs> and yeah, that's my that's my journey, publishing. Amazing. It's Yeah, it's so exciting. And I said before, your intro that you studied under the writer Sarah Moss I did yeah how was that because I love Sarah Moss love Sarah Moss yeah so that was actually the course the module I mentioned before historical fiction fictional histories she taught that she another writer a historical fiction author called Tim Leach uh, who's also amazing and she was just she was amazing, very encouraging and very, she's someone who believes in just writing and rewriting and rewriting and just deleting draft after draft, which is something that I can't do personally. I just, I edit as I write, but I think she was fantastic in the sense that she encouraged each author to find his or her own approach. And that's something that was very invaluable, like very invaluable advice to me. So amazing. And I then you've, that. you've brought this incredible book to us. So, you know, thank goodness, even though you said that you've had rejections, thank goodness that I mean, you kept going because <laughs> how, how how this book could ever be rejected? No, honestly, no, honestly, <laughs> I think I think it was because obviously it's such a like Greek mythology is is having like such a huge moment now. It's a big big trend, and at the time this was I was submitting back in 2021. I think some agents believed that the market was too crowded, and others told me that I was doing something that was too different from all the other retellings, which I, I thought it was a strength because obviously you don't want to like do what other people are doing. Uh, but I think they were kind of scared that maybe it just wouldn't work. Cause obviously I was, I was writing in third person. I was writing in present tense. I was writing something that was more, as I said before, historical fiction rather than just mythical retelling. It didn't have any magical elements in it. And I think people were just worried that they didn't know how to sell it right in a way. Uh, but it's just it's just about finding the right agent, really. So, yeah, yeah it all worked out. And that's it. It only takes one yes. That's all it takes. <laughs> that's so true. That is so true. That's what I kept telling myself two years yeah. ago. <laughs> this is what we do. This is what we do as creatives. We just take wait for that yes. I mean, I'd never heard of Clytemnestra's story before this I don't even know how to say her name um, can you tell us a bit more about the inspiration for the story and about her character yeah absolutely so as I said before I grew up in Italy and I attended this let's call it classical high school uh, <laughs> it's basically a high school where classics are compulsory so you study ancient Greek and Latin for five years and you start studying ancient Greek language and literature when you're only 14 years old so it's pretty intense so I was kind of familiar with the Greek myths because of that kind of background but specifically I became familiar with the character of Clyde Nestra when I was about 
1617 and because we were studying the Greek, the ancient Greek plays, the ancient Greek tragedies. And I immediately fell in love with her. I immediately thought that Clytemnestra was the standout character from the Greek myth because she's a very ancient character, but also a very modern woman. As I always say, she's someone who refuses to submit. And I think the first time I encountered her, I, I was kind of, she's mentioned in the Odyssey, which is the epic uh, journey of the hero Odysseus as he tries to go back home after the Trojan War. And she's just a passing mention in the Odyssey. She's not like an actual character, but she's mentioned when Odysseus goes to the underworld and meets Agamemnon, who was Clytemnestra's husband and uh, whom was murdered by Clytemnestra uh, as soon as he got back from the Trojan War. This is why Clytemnestra is famous, famous for being this kind of lustful murderess. That's how she's been remembered for, for years, for centuries, really. And so in the Odyssey, Odysseus and Agamemnon meet in the underworld and Agamemnon calls Clytemnestra monstrous. He calls her bestial. He calls her deadly. So the very first time she's mentioned in the kind of Western literary tradition, she is this kind of, as I said, very tormented uh, murderous and but then she takes center stage in this play which is what I studied all those years ago and that's what made me fall in love with Clytemnestra and the play is called Agamemnon even though Clytemnestra is actually the main character was written by Aeschylus and in this play Clytemnestra is just an extraordinary heroine first of all she is incredibly powerful she's a ruler she has been ruling when we meet her in the play she has been ruling the city of Mycenae for 10 years and Mycenae in ancient Greece was the most powerful city this period in in history sometimes is called Mycenaean Greece after the city of Mycenae. So she, she was really the most powerful city of, of ancient Greece. She's also someone who is very cunning, very clever, very articulate. If you read the play, every confrontation that she has with her husband or the elders who are kind of the counselors of the king or queen, she always outclasses them. She always outsmarts them. There is a point in the play when she paints this picture of herself as a kind of lonely, wretched woman um, who wanted to commit suicide many times while her husband was away, which we know isn't true. She just knows how to use her words. And she's also someone who is incredibly unapologetic. And that is my favorite thing about her. She just doesn't care about what other people think of her, which is not only extraordinary for like a modern woman, but also like specifically in the Greek heroic age. Uh, it's just incredible. And so when I was reading the play, all those things that I just listed made me want to write about her. And I think I think it was Madeleine Miller who once wrote that Clytemnestra is every storyteller's dream. And I just could not agree more because the fact that she's powerful, scandalous, cunning, all those things make her, I always say that all those things make her the embodiment of men's fears and anxieties towards powerful women. And that's the topic that I just really love exploring. She is an incredible character. And I was just completely blown away by this book. I think I speak for both me and Lydia that we don't really or haven't really delved into many myth retellings. I think this was the first for me. So I was very nervous going into it, but this is my favorite read of the year. And I know we're into March, but like this is going to be on my top, <laughs> top books yeah. of the year. Like it's, it's so incredible. Yeah. And I just think the way that you explore the, the disparities, I guess, in sort of societal perceptions and treatment between like men and women, it's, it's sort of like, it's a tale as old as time, isn't it? And I just, yeah, I'm just so in awe, like how, how it just felt so relevant, even 
even now. I was just completely blown away. Obviously, you've written, you've, you wrote the book in part, you split the novel into parts and you track, well, we track as readers Clytemnestra throughout various ages in her life and sort of all the, the trials and tribulations that she experiences. Why was it important for you to split the novel into these parts and to and to track her life in this way? It was really, really important. Actually, you know, before I answer the question, I just loved it. You said that this was your first myth retelling because I, I always say that I've wrote this both for people who are kind of familiar with the Greek myths and who maybe are classicists and will pick up on like references to the ancient texts. But I really wanted to make sure that this was novel for people who maybe didn't know anything about these stories and didn't know anything about these myths because that's that's just something that I love reading myself. I love just opening a novel where I don't know anything about the background or the setting and I just learn something new. And this whole idea of like reading a book and learning as you're reading without realizing that you're actually learning and mm. that makes sense. But I think it's just like one of the best things about reading in general. So I'm just glad that it worked for you, even if it was your first kind of telling. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of splitting the novel into five parts, well, originally it was split into three parts <laughs> to kind of mimic the uh, ancient Greek plays. But I really wanted to make sure that I was following her from her time as a young woman in Sparta, as a Spartan princess, up to her ascent to power in the city of Mycenae. And this was because I think most of the time the Greek myths are told separately when actually they're all connected. And it's something that it's one of my favorite things about the Greek myths that they're kind of a big tapestry where each thread is just connected to like each story is like a thread connected to all the others and I really wanted to convey that in the novel to just bring together different myths different famous characters obviously Clytemnestra remains the protagonist throughout this is her story but I was interested in showing readers how she's actually connected to I mean her brothers <laughs> obviously but they're not usually mentioned her brothers Castor and Polydeuces were twins and who were Argonauts they were part of this band of heroes who went in search of the Golden Fleece they obviously are connected to Clytemnestra's story obviously Helen's story and the fact that she causes the Trojan War is connected to Clytemnestra's I wanted to show how Clytemnestra is kind of bound to the hero Odysseus through her cousin through her own cousin Penelope so I think on the one side I was interested in showing this on the other I I think most of the time with these retellings what they do wonderfully is that they retell a specific myth and so uh, they tell like a specific part of a character's life whereas I want I wanted to explore her whole life because her story is so tricky. You're writing about a character who kills her own husband, obviously. And if you don't show the reader's wife, don't go back in time, then it's going to be really hard for your readers to root for a character. And my goal was to kind of reclaim her reputation to make sure that you see a character doing some bad things, but that you always kind of root for her, even though sometimes she's unlikable, even though sometimes she can be cruel. But I wanted to show all the different facets of her. I wanted the readers to kind of fall in love with her in a way. And I had to start at the very beginning. And I also like this idea of exploring how vengeance and obsession change can change a person, all the kind of negative effects of vengeance, uh, of obsession. And there was a moment when I was just editing the novel, I remember, and I was just, I kept putting a scene from her like childhood next to a scene from her time in my scene. And I was just, it was very interesting for me to see how how different she, she becomes. And there's a scene in the novel when she says, um, once decency courage goodness came easily to her now it is just lies I'm actually paraphrasing my own, my own novel that's not how it goes but you know you know which thing I'm talking about yeah and, um, and she's become a completely different person and for me it was important to to show how she gets there and why why she becomes this kind of person I also you just made me remember that perfect first page that I've been seeing everybody that reads Clytemnestra take photos of this page the opening poem you mean yeah yes could you read us that 
that first page because I just think it's so beautiful. Yeah. So as we said before, the novel is split into five different parts and each part is introduced either by like a little poem that I wrote, but like drawing from the ancient sources or a line from the ancient Greek that I translated. And this is like a little poem that I wrote. And it's obviously about female power and ambition, which is like the one of the main themes of the novel. There is no peace for a woman with ambition, no love for a woman with a crown. She loves too much. She is lustful. Her power is too strong. She's ruthless. She fights for vengeance. She's mad. Kings are brilliant, mighty, godlike. Queens are deadly, shameless, accursed. So good. And that, oh. listeners, is why you need to pick this book up. I had no idea that you wrote that. I mean, I've, I've read it back earlier and I was like, okay, so it's n- nobody's been quoted here. But I was trying to like Google like specific lines. Like, where has this come from? I didn't know it'd come from. Obviously, it's come from your brain. I mean, come on. But it is just, it's, that is incredible. And as soon as I read that, I was like, okay, I'm in for a treat here. Like, yeah. I just knew I was going to love you it. Know. You just yeah. know in that moment that this yeah. is going to be something special. 100%. Actually, this is actually the last thing I ever wrote. This was not in my first, second, or third draft. Wow. Um, I, yeah, because as I said before, the novel was split into three different parts before, and the parts were not introduced by any particular quote. And then, as I realized that it actually, like the structure needed to be different, I needed five parts instead of three. I had the fourth part was introduced by letters already because I had written those letters, and then I had two quotes that I really, really loved, and so I used those to introduce part two and five. And then I was like, I should just write something myself I don't usually write poetry I was like I'll go for it and then it took me like a whole week to get this right <laughs> it's, it was worth the effort <laughs> it, it really is it's gorgeous I, I love it so much and I feel like it really summarizes how throughout history men are labeled as you say brilliant mighty godlike and then it's the women that they're lustful they're ruthless they're mad it's just all these like negative connotations and I feel like Clytemnestra is your book I mean Clytemnestra is just a total reclaiming of that narrative and definitely reclaiming of her story because you know when I've looked up Clytemnestra's story after reading this book it is just saying that you know she's the wife of Agamemnon she's the daughter of da 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 she belongs to these men rather than being her own individual being and I think you get that so much throughout history there's all these women and their name is just attached to her men and it's just (laughs) she's actually got so much going for her without any of these (laughs) men in the picture absolutely I think so much of this novel is about ownership and about taking ownership mm-hmm. and I feel like Clytemnestra takes control of what she can do in her own life like anything that she can get a hold of a grip mm-hmm. of she's gonna do it because she needs to take that ownership for herself it's so interesting the way that her personality works in that way what was it about Clytemnestra's place in the world that you wanted to explore with this book that's a great question I think actually also uh, following something that you said before this idea of you know this contrast between how men are perceived how women are perceived that was something that I definitely wanted to explore because not just in general how modern that concept is but specifically in ancient Greece I think something that is very interesting is how heroism is perceived because ancient Greek heroes the ancient Greeks didn't have an idea of heroes as they didn't perceive heroes as we perceive them for them heroes were meant to be very arrogant people they were meant to be very boastful people they were meant to be ruthless and cruel and all these things made them 
heroes. So they were not good people at all. And if you think about like the biggest heroes from the Greek myth, you have people like Achilles, uh, who is quite known for his ruthlessness. You have people like Odysseus, who is famous for his cunning, but he's also a very cruel man. He's someone who promises mercy to, to spies and then kills them. You know, he's someone who's quite interested in just surviving and he doesn't care if all his men die. He's the only one who survives of all his men. Like in the Odyssey, he's the only one who goes back home. And and then you have someone like Agamemnon, Clytemnestra's wife, who is, and I always say this, but he's always described as a hero in the ancient sources, but never as a good man. So if you think about this, and if you apply this kind of notion of heroism to Clytemnestra, you see that she has some of these features, like she is definitely quite brave. She can be cunning as well. Actually, her name literally means famous for her cunning, which I think is quite interesting. And it's something that I wanted to explore. So when you talk about, you know, her place in the world, she she should be a heroine, but she isn't seen as a heroine just because she's a woman, which I think is quite fascinating. And even the idea of vengeance, that she's a vengeful character, that she's a vengeful woman. You know, vengeance was not a negative thing in ancient Greece, specifically in the Greek heroic age. Vengeance and justice were the same thing. For us, they're opposite things, but they were one and the same. Vengeance was kind of a duty that sons had to like carry out for their fathers. And it and Clytemnestra is like that. She she takes her role. She sometimes she does think of herself not necessarily as a man, but she perceives herself as a free woman. So I definitely wanted to show that she is a heroine, both because she is definitely better than her male counterparts, but also because she does embody some of those same qualities that make men heroes. And I also really like this idea of the contrast between how she grows up and how she is later in life, because like almost the first half of the novel is set in Sparta and in Sparta women they were not necessarily free but they grew up kind of training hunting fighting they were educated and they they thought of themselves as like free citizens in a way and so Clytemnestra grows up with that mindset and I like this idea of showing how later on she encounters a world that does not think her worthy that does not think her free in a way and I just wanted to see how she doesn't just survive but rather keeps fighting because she has that sort of confidence inside of herself. A lot of ancient Greek mythology, especially modern adaptations um, and like screen adaptations as well, it's always the men being centered. They're always at the forefront of the narrative. It's never the women. And, you know, you've not denied that there are powerful men in ancient Greece. You know, you've not denied them their stories within this. I loved the way that you explored how how the way Clytemnestra and her, her family were brought up as these free citizens and they're trained and and I think that definitely gives you a sense of the kind of woman that she grows into. You understand her a lot better from seeing that. So I really liked that you, like I said before, that you tracked it throughout her ages. But I love that you mentioned the um, kind of the childhood period and the whole idea yes. of like siblings. And because I also wrote this as a family saga in a way. I, I wanted, I really wanted to explore the relationship between the siblings because, well, Castor and Polydeuces, they no one really talks about them, <laughs> and they're quite charming, interesting characters. But I also, I also really really wanted to write a novel about sisterhood because <laughs> I yes. think I think there aren't enough novels about that. There are some great ones. I'm thinking, you know, Best of Friends like Camila Shamsi or one of my favorites, My Brilliant Friend by Elena Ferrante or The Wolf Den. You know, there are some absolutely great novels about sisterhood and friendship, but not enough, I think. And it's also really hard to write about female friendship in a way that feels honest and raw and visceral, I think sometimes. So I knew like as soon as I started writing the novel that this was also 
going to be a novel about the relationship between Helen and Clytemnestra, with Clytemnestra being the main character, obviously, but I knew I had to write about Helen and I knew that I wanted a relationship that was never predictable, that, that was always multifaceted in a way and a relationship where there was love and obsession and just jealousy sometimes. And I think most of the times that their relationship is portrayed in a way that doesn't quite work for me in the sense that Helen is obviously the most beautiful woman in the world. She's the face that launched a thousand ships. Uh, and because of that, people just kind of assumed that Clytemnestra was jealous of her. Mm-hmm. But actually in, in Sparta, strength was the thing that was valued rather than beauty. And so I it was just really interesting for me to kind of turn that around. And also with writing about friendship and sisterhood came the challenge of writing about Helen specifically because Helen is the most famous, I think she is the most famous female character from the Greek myth. She's been portrayed countless times, but she always feels kind of slippery, I would say. She's always quite quite hard to pin down. Mm-hmm. Her kind of childhood is very confusing. Her relationship with men like Paris and Menelaus, they're quite, they're quite hard to pin down again. And so for me, it was really about getting Helen right and making sure that she was like a character that was fully fleshed out. And then the sisterhood part came later on, if that makes sense. Yes. There is such a detailed like family tree. And I imagine it was really hard to create this cast of characters. And like you said, like flesh out each character. Like what was the process like for having to flesh out such a huge, a huge cast of characters and this huge family tree? What was the process like? I think the challenge there was on the one side, there were characters that um, that was writing that are not really famous. So I had a lot of freedom with them. So for instance, Clytemnestra's younger sister, Timandra, she is just a passing mention in, in the ancient Greek sources. She appears in this kind of poetry fragment by uh, Stesichorus, uh, who says, who talks about a prophecy, which features in my novel. He says that the daughters of Leda were kind of destined, they were cursed to marry twice and thrice, and that they will all be deserters of the lawful husbands. And that's how Timandra is mentioned. And that's all that we have on her. And so with her, I just could explore a whole kind of uh, subplot uh, completely with a lot of freedom. Uh, but then the big challenge for most of the characters, I would say, was writing characters who are really famous. So Helen, we've mentioned her before, but then we have Odysseus, we have Penelope. And obviously when you write about characters who are really famous, you already know that there will be a lot of people who expect them to be a certain way. And I think I wanted them to write in a way that was that paid homage to the sources, but that also felt fresh and entertaining. And this applies to the narrative as well, by the way, because obviously some people already knew what was going to happen. Some people already know how the story ends. And so I had to make it fresh and entertaining. And um, so I kept asking myself, how do I make sure that the reader keeps turning the pages? And I think for me, the, the answer to that was to just go back to the sources and focusing on just tiny details or tiny lines that usually go unnoticed. Just to give an example in terms of Helen and how I created her character, there's, well, she appears in a lot of different ancient Greek plays, but two of the more the most famous ones are Helen by Euripides and the Trojan Women. And in the play Helen, there are a couple of lines that really inspired me specifically. Uh, they helped me to create a kind of younger version of Helen. At some point, Helen in the play says, all my life, people called me Teras. And Teras is the ancient Greek word for both portent and freak, uh, kind of wonder and monster. And I just really, really like this idea of a Helen that was bullied even in her childhood. And I was just really interested in exploring how that must have affected her. Because we know that Helen has been hated her entire life. Whenever whenever people speak of Helen, she's always the woman who kind of caused distraction and, and, and killed all those men with her beauty, you know. But going back to what happened to her in her childhood, so that line was very important for me. It just made me think about a girl who was very frustrated, who was very sad and just very lonely. And and then there's another line when she talks about her mother and, and the god Zeus. She says, the god Zeus 
tricked my mother uh, into bed. And so I won't go into detail here because that would be a spoiler for the novel, but I was just really interested in how the rumors around her birth affected her. And and then for like the older Helen, I used like other tiny mentions and also a fantastic speech that she gives in The Trojan Women. Because I think, you know, you were saying that most of the times with these retellings and in later representations, it's always about the men, but what's, which is absolutely true. But what's really interesting is that if you go back to the ancient texts, the women were really important. You know, they, they had huge storylines. It's just that throughout time, we just kind of forgot about them. And in, in this play, in The Trojan Women, Helen at some point has this extraordinary speech, which sounds almost like a legal defense. It's a moment when the, the, the women of Troy, who are now kind of captives after the after they have lost the war, they, they try to convince Helen's husband, Menelaus, to kill Helen. They say, just kill your wife, because wherever she looks, she just brings death and destruction. And so Menelaus goes to Helen, and he's like, well, here I am, ready to kill you. And she, I'm paraphrasing, by the way, that's not what <laughs> And and uh, Helen starts, she starts talking and she is the cleverest character you could ever encounter. If you take that play in Diagamemnon by Aeschylus, you really see how Helen and Clytemnestra were sisters. And she gives a list of all the reasons why she did not cause the war. She starts accusing Menelaus of leaving her alone with a stranger, with a foreigner in, in her palace. She accuses the queen of Troy, now a slave, for giving birth to Paris, even though she knew that he would bring destruction upon her city. She's incredibly clever, incredibly articulate. And by the end, Menelaus, he doesn't know what to say. He just goes like, okay, I will not kill you. May I will deal with you later. And we all know that actually he will not kill her. And so in terms of creating a large cast of characters, I think it was kind of balancing, finding a balance between very famous characters and just dealing with them and just writing them in a way that felt familiar, but also quite fresh. And then exploring lesser known characters, I would say. It's, it's such a fascinating book. It really is. And I think especially with Helen like seeing some of the well quite a bit of what she goes through herself it's quite brutal and there is kind of like a lot of brutality in the novel there are some scenes that are and without spoilers are absolutely breathtakingly traumatic it kills you it really does and some of that brutality I think is indicative of the time it was made time it's set of course that's part of Spartan life as well but what was it like for you as a writer creating and in these really brutal moments and kind of thinking how much do I do how far do I go how far can I push it I love this question that's a great question it's also a very important one I think so I knew that the book was going to be quite a brutal book because Clytemnestra's story is inherently brutal it's a story you know about a woman killing her husband about a father killing his own his own child and this is not really a spoiler because that's how the story goes (laughs) I will not I will not give any more spoilers here (laughs) so I knew I had to kind of incorporate that brutality and and in order to to really make sure that the word felt real and so that the readers could just immerse themselves into this experience but I also didn't want to write a book that was just felt hopeless or just traumatic thing after a traumatic thing keeps happening and I knew I had to find some sort of hope and the hope for me came with the character of Clytemnestra herself because she doesn't just survive as I said before she keeps fighting back with everything horrible that happens to her she just keeps fighting back and for me just writing it felt really inspiring I don't know I just I gained a lot of confidence from writing about this character and it felt really empowering and so I think my my hope was that it could be an empowering experience for readers as well as they as they go through the novel but in terms of like research 
mentioning the brutality specifically. I think I did I did a lot of research into the Spartan word, both in terms of like practical research. So, you know, researching things like how was their training? What did they do when they went out to hunt? <laughs> did they have races? You know, that sort of thing. Uh, but also kind of, I, I did a lot of cultural research. So what I kind of call cultural research, which is just asking myself questions such as how did they perceive death? Were they scared of death? What was their perception of love? How did they think of shame? You know, th- those sort of things. And that allowed me to recreate that brutality in a way while also just keeping my distance from it in a way. Because obviously you're a modern writer. And I think the interesting thing about the myth, the Greek myth specifically, is that, well, any myth really, is that they operate on different timelines. You have the timeline in which they're first kind of told. And then every time they're retold, they operate differently. And so I think it's just a very interesting experience to rewrite an ancient myth for a modern audience because you have you're operating on two different levels you're just recreating that word but also you're making sure that it appeals to a modern audience that it is clear that the way which that word works is clear for a modern reader one of my favorite I mean there's many things about Clytemnestra that were my favorite so I can't just say one of my favorite things there were many but one of my favorite things about Clytemnestra and the way you wrote Clytemnestra is how sort of unapologetic her her rage was and I mean as Lydia was saying like there are parts in the book without giving any spoilers there are parts in the book that are really brutal and her rage is something that sort of powers her on you know no matter how much grief she endures and how much suffering she endures that rage is the thing that sort of drives her what did you feel what was the role that female rage played in the novel for you played a huge role and I I wanted it to play a huge role because I think that as a society we're not still completely comfortable with female rage we're not comfortable talking about not just female rage or vengeance but also female ambition and female power which is why I wanted to write about them through the perspective following the perspective of an ancient character this idea of having a main character who was very angry and very vengeful but also making sure that readers would not really like her I mean I like her I think she's amazing but I don't I didn't want to make her likable because I think that would have been just a mistake you know you should not concern yourself with making your female character likable because then you're just like destroying feminism um, <laughs> but, but rather they would root for her like the idea of having readers rooting for her is it is quite hard to think about it because I know so many people like in my life who read books and just don't like the female characters there's this idea that no matter what women do they just can't be likable which is why you should never strive for mm. likability because just it's mm. not it's just unattainable anyways but I think it was a bit there, there was a big challenge there you know writing a very angry character and making sure that she would appeal to readers so I think my my way of fixing that was just to as you said she's an apologetic and that's her that's her kind of gift in a way the fact that she does not care about other people's opinions and that to me is always something likable people who are very confident as they always kind of exude some sort of likability in a way and so I just I did not make that up you know she's like that in the ancient sources as well she in the Agamemnon after killing her husband rather than you know hiding or running away she goes back on stage and she has this amazing amazing speech where she says I brooded on this trial this ancient blood feud year by year at last my arrow came here I stand and here I struck and here my work is done and she says this in front of the whole city uh she thinks herself heroic which I think is just incredibly inspiring (laughs) 
Yeah, I was just, yes, girl. Yes, queen. <laughs> yeah, I went <laughs> girling over my own character. <laughs> own character. Um, but again, it's also a very kind of interesting idea to explore for a modern audience, you know, just challenging readers and asking them, are you going to root for this woman who is incredibly angry, who's incredibly vengeful, but who has endured like the most horrifying things? Mm-hmm. And I think like, we do, sorry, but we do have yeah. some, <laughs> that's like, just afterthought. But <laughs> I think we are we are getting used to this more and more. I think there are some books now with characters who are quite vengeful. Uh, I think Animal by Lizette Dale, even in like contemporary fiction, you know, mm. Animal by Lizette Dale or like any Gillian Flynn novel, you know, Gone Girl is probably like, it is a, you could read it as a revenge narrative. So I think we are kind of getting used to this idea. But there are still people who think that writing books with vengeful characters at the core is not feminist. Mm. I do not agree with that at all. I think feminism is really it's not just about equality but it's also about allowing women to be whatever they want to be it's allowing women to be as flawed as multifaceted as complex as the men are usually allowed to be and so if we have more characters that are flawed more female characters that are flawed I think that's just gonna teach us something <laughs> rather than you know it's not misogynist at all absolutely no, no 100% I completely agree with you and, and what I loved about Clytemnestra was how you subverted so many of the stereotypes mm-hmm. that we have about women in fiction particularly and you know my question again about female rage as well but particularly focusing on that subversion of she's not a weeping mess she goes through this horrendous experience but she never sits there and becomes this weeping crumpled mess which is what I think a lot of the time we're told that women should become you should show your grief like you are a properly crying in the corner and weeping and mourning and all of this stuff whereas I feel like Clytemnestra she she's angry and she's set about it and she's going to be angry and she's not going to let go of the rage and I think that it's just such a brilliant portrayal of that characteristic and I cannot compliment you enough on making this wonderful person come to life because it's a book I will be giving my daughter as soon as she's old enough you know this is a book that teenage girls we should be getting these teenage Mm -hmm. girls to read this because if I'd have read this when I was 16 boy would I have I have made some different choices <laughs> you know it gives, well, it's... I hope in a better way <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm going around killing your boyfriend you know I'm not yeah. I'm not planning on killing my husband but there are definite parts of that where I'm like you know yeah. what we're not we're not condoning murder here <laughs> maybe a little bit it depends on what happens depends yeah but... <laughs> Well, next question. No, I'm kidding. I agree completely. And I think, I mean, there's nothing wrong with characters who, with female characters who are weeping. I think there's the most important thing is just not putting female characters in a box and just, you know, that there is a character who weeps and and not not in my novel, I mean, but you have some characters who are weeping and you have other characters who are vengeful. And I think you you need to have this kind of whole range of reactions to trauma and to grief. And with Clive Nestor specifically, I think I had a couple of people who were asking me they were not criticizing the novel at all they were just interested in why I made her so vengeful and my answer was that she's vengeful that's the story mm. <laughs> uh, obviously I did I did explore that that whole side as much as I could but that was the starting point for me I never thought of her as anything else because she is someone who deals with her trauma by by just seeking out vengeance and that is the story so there was no other Clytemnestra you know the Clytemnestra that I had in my mind was 
vengeful. She was angry. She was very strong, but she was also a passionate character. And I was saying this before. She was also a very generous woman. And I think one of my my favorite scenes to write actually happens in the first part of the novel. It's quite hard to describe this without giving any spoilers for people who haven't <laughs> read the novel. It's so Clytemnestra has grown up kind of protecting her sisters. Like everything she has done, she has been a very protective sister, just in relation to Helen, but also in relation to her younger sister Timandra. And the first time that Clytemnestra is really hurt, her sisters are not there and they kind of run and they try to you know to save her but it is too late and Timandra specifically there is a scene from her perspective while all this happens and one of the last lines that she has is as soon as she realizes that her sister Clytemnestra is getting hurt and that she's not there she says actually let, let me see if I can find it because it's actually I just love this scene so much please okay here you go she says okay so I'll just start reading from here without giving any spoilers so she realizes her sister is being hurt and she says tears stream down her cheeks and blind her it is the first time she's frightened for someone else not only for herself the feeling makes her choke and it's this idea that it, rather than telling you something about Timandra I think this tells you something about Clytemnestra and how amazing what an amazing sister she was you know up to this point because I think you don't really realize how special something is or someone is until she's just not there and for the first time Timandra has to care for her sister but she can't and she realizes how important and how special Clytemnestra has been in her life so I think she you know we have described her as cruel sometimes as cunning as vengeful but she's also all of these things she's also an amazing sister just a very protective mother she's also kind of a very fierce ruler and I think it's important to highlight those things as well I think it's beautiful because you know she does she fiercely loves her family and with a lot of historical figures it's with men if they kill because they fiercely love somebody it's admirable but if if a woman does the same thing you know it's like you said before she comes across as mad or you know she's portrayed in a really negative way and it's like you know male characters historically have always been allowed sort of like a grey area in terms of morality whereas women haven't been sort of allowed the same and I really liked like Lydia said before the way that you've sort of subverted these things and you flip the narrative of that and you've allowed for this female rage for female ambition and power and desire as well you know you've explored all of these that That is true please talk about that because I loved the way you explored female desire no um, I mean it is quite a big part of the book because Clytemnestra has quite a few lovers in the novel yes. uh, most of them taken from the actual myth one made up the character Leon he does not exist in the myth I, I made him up but I just I was interesting in two things first talking about female desire writing about female desire in the ancient world because I think in contemporary fiction now we have so many brilliant novels to do that but sometimes mm. it, with uh, historical fiction it's not like it's not a theme that's quite common uh, I mean there are some great novels about it but not enough I would say but I was also interested in writing a cast of male characters who were quite different from one another because I don't think that when you write a feminist retelling you just have to have cruel men in it I think it is quite interesting to explore how different men can be so you have someone like Agamemnon who is the worst and (laughs) he's horrible he's incredibly cruel (laughs) uh, but he's also quite powerful and with him I was interested in seeing like where his power came from why he became the leader of the Greek force during the Trojan War. And then you have someone like Clytemnestra's first husband, Tantalus, who he does appear in a source as like a passing mention, but I kind of created his car. Like I, I made sure that he was like fully fleshed out. And I, I was really interested in him because he he embodies like a different kind of life for Clytemnestra. She has lived, she has grown up in Sparta. She doesn't really know pleasure. She's just used to pain in a way. Um, the pain is her way of life. Vengeance has been her way of life. War is her way of life. And, and then she meets Tantalus, who is a 
foreigner and ancient the ancient Greeks were incredibly racist they like any person who was not Greek they just called him like a foreigner they, they had this like very um narrow idea of of what like a brave person was supposed to be and and then Tantalus arrives and he is a good person he is brave but he's also gentle he's generous and he's loving and Clytemnestra doesn't really know what this means she's kind of scared at first and obviously like all those qualities do not make him a hero in in the Greek heroic age which is why he is not respected by someone like Clytemnestra's father or by Agamemnon but Clytemnestra can see the good in him and she is kind of attracted she's really fascinated by him and I think he's kind of the first her first encounter with female pleasure but I think specifically talking about female desire I think the most interesting character for me to write was her lover uh, later on in Mycenae who is Aegisthus he is a very famous character in the myth actually but he's always described as this kind of disgusting creepy uh, creature um, mm-hmm. just a treacherous kind of man and I always thought well Clytemnestra falls for him <laughs> surely <laughs> he must have been charming in some way and he's someone who has endured just the worst and um, I was interested in yes female desire on the one side but also how broken people kind of, kind of find solace in each other and how they can survive in a way so it was just for me it was a mixture of writing about desire and writing about how broken people keep living in a way and those two things came together but I also like the idea of writing about a character who takes the initiative all the time because that's who Clytemnestra is um, and that's what she does with her first husband and then with her lover and I just really enjoy writing about that because I, I just love books with characters like that I love reading books like that so I just wanted to have that in my own novel as well and I feel like it's I mean it's perfect for someone like Clytemnestra she is someone who takes the initiative so a hundred percent yes she's not waiting for anyone she's just no. doing it <laughs> <laughs> I love her. Yeah, I love too. her. And I, I have absolutely loved the book. And I cannot tell you how much I've been recommending it to everybody that I know. I will and I will be forcing it down everybody's throat until I like <laughs> well, the award in, in <laughs> until hopefully, <laughs> hopefully they will want to read it. <laughs> I don't care. Don't care about one. <laughs> it's a dictatorship. Yeah, that's it. I'm a Spartan woman now. <laughs> what have you done, Costanza? What I know. I'm done? over it now. <laughs> you created a monster. <laughs> Sorry. I love this. Thank you, guys. Finally, I just wanted to ask you one last quick question, and that was: Why do you feel like these stories need to be retold and kept alive for future generations? That's a great question. And I have so many answers to that. I will try to one. <laughs> I love that you said one last question. I was like, oh, this is a big one. Okay. <laughs> Well, first of all, we have said this before, we've talked about this a little bit, but these stories, these characters, some of these characters are incredibly modern. And so when you write about them, you just, it allows you to explore so many modern themes like female desire and ambition and vengeance and how women are perceived when they're powerful and when they're ambitious, you know, that sort of thing. I also think that when we are rewriting the stories, we are paying homage to the concept of myth as the ancient Greeks intended it. Because myth in ancient Greece was never something fixed. It was constantly changing, constantly evolving. Each myth had so many different versions of it. I just take, you know, Helen's story. According to some versions, she escaped with Paris willingly. According to other stories, uh, she was kidnapped uh, and just brought to Troy against her will. There is yet another version that says that actually she never went to Troy at all, but actually was shipped off to Egypt while her ghost went to Troy. So when we're, you know, rewriting the stories, again, we're just doing something that the Greeks themselves are already doing it. But I also like the idea, and I've talked 
about this in a couple of events. I just love thinking about the idea of the word myth, which in ancient Greek is mythos. It means um, fact, fiction, story, any story transmitted by a word of mouth, legend, uh, but it also means of, like public speech. And it is used for the first time in the Odyssey, in like the first book of the Odyssey, when Penelope, Odysseus' wife, and Clytemnestra's husband walks into the great hall and there's a bard singing a song. She doesn't really like the song he's singing. It stresses her out. And so she asks him to sing another song. But she's then interrupted by her own son, Telemachus, who says, shut up, mother. Again, this is me paraphrasing. Shut up, mother. Go back to your rooms. Go back to your weaving. Speech will belong to the men. And the word he uses is mythos. So I think when we are rewriting the stories, we're actually reclaiming this. We are reclaiming the this power, you know, the, the power of public speech. And it's an incredibly crucial thing to do I think and this idea that there are so many female writers now so many women writers now rewriting these myths is no coincidence I think mm. I love Thanks the goodness. you made <laughs> you were like, I just, yeah, I, just I just want to have your brain just for a day I feel like it would <laughs> Don't say that. your brain is perfect <laughs> but I I'm very sad that that is all we've got time for but before we let you go I mean I, I read before that you have obviously you've been a producer and you've written for television. Is there any uh, plans in the works for a Clytemnestra adaptation? Not yet, but fingers crossed. Keep your fingers crossed for this one. Oh, I'm keeping everything crossed, and we're both actors, so I'm just saying when she's when she's about when she's about in the thirty bracket, thirty years old bracket. <laughs> someone right here, ready. So do you want to play Clytemnestra Helen? Is my dream you're role? <laughs> you're Clytemnestra. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. I'll take Helen. I'll, I can. I've got a face I mean, that wants a thousand. I mean, Helen is a great character. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think it's said though that Clytemnestra is tall at some point. Did I read that character description? Did I... <laughs> yeah, I think. I think she's uh, tall. I, I, re- I read something somewhere, and I was like, "Oh, I don't match up to that." But I'm just going to ignore that, and I am going to be Clytemnestra. <laughs> That's okay. As long as you're years I can be fierce I am fierce I can do that (laughs) Um, and before we let you go to finish off our debut episodes um we've been asking for your recommendations for debut other debut authors uh that you'd like to recommend to our listeners so can you give us some so I have four recommendations gorgeous love it you can come back yeah (laughs) well I actually have more but I'll try to summarize so I think my first is going to be reversing me home you had uh, yes Eleanor yes Yes, yeah, amazing. She's amazing. <laughs> yeah, she's amazing. Her book is amazing. I think she often says that it's not a book about slavery, but what comes after slavery. And mm-hmm. I think that's the perfect description. Just gorgeous writing, amazing character, and very, it is a book. Yes, it is partly about slavery, but it's a very hopeful book. And that's just the best part for me. My other recommendation is Talking at Night by Claire Davery. This is going to be published by Penguin Michael Joseph, my publisher, this summer. I did an event with Claire at Cheltenham last year, and the book, it's going to be compared to Sally Rooney, but I don't think that's the right comparison. I think it's perfect for people who enjoy David Nichols. So this is like, like a one day kind of novel and it's amazing, beautiful writing. And just, it's a very heartbreaking story. Oh, I'm ready for it. <laughs> yes. yes. So Tommy and I, River Sing Me Home. I'm, I've also read Dazzling by Chico Dili Melumaru. Yes. It's named oh, a gorgeous, gorgeous book um, with a lot of magical elements woven into the story like yeah it's I love magical realism in, in novels and I think that just works perfectly and Chikodili has like the most unique voice um it's just uh, so good 
And then my fourth recommendation, I think for people who enjoyed Clytemnestra, I would probably read Lady Macbeth by Isabel Schuller. I did an event with Isabel recently in Norwich. She's great. And her novel is, it, it's just an origin story of Lady Macbeth as a character. And it just, again, very entertaining, gorgeous writing. And you have this like villainess that you just end up rooting for. And it's just great. So yeah, those four are going to be my recommendation. I have many more, but yeah. <laughs> I'll contain myself. <laughs> I am so sold on all of those. And I think I'll take any recommendation from you from here on out because you've given us a cracking list. Um, (laughs) Thank you. uh, Yes, we're going to have you back every month. I'm joking. (laughs) It's done. Part of my contract. Yes. (laughs) But we do fully expect you back for the next book. Do we have something to look forward to? Yes, I'm almost done with the first draft of my next novel, but I'm not allowed to talk about it. Otherwise, it murders me. But I think there will be an announcement soon. Gorgeous. Well, that is music to my ears. I'm so excited. And and we're having you back for the next one. You've already agreed. You've already said so. No, yes. Yes, I would love to be back. Yes, please. Amazing. Can our listeners find you on social media? You can, yes. So I am on Instagram and Twitter. I'm on TikTok as well, but I don't use it. So don't go there. Uh, yeah, it, uh, both on Instagram and Twitter is just my name and surname. So Costanza Catat. Beautiful. And listeners, please do go and buy Clytemnestra if you haven't already. It is a phenomenal book and already one of my favorite reads of the year. So yeah, I, I just absolutely insist that you will go and buy it and go give Costanza a follow because she's amazing, as you will have already heard in this episode. And if you did enjoy this episode, please don't forget to rate review and subscribe as it helps us to reach other listeners and other readers and if you would like to give us a follow you can do so at pair of bookends pod on instagram and out of pair of bookends on twitter and tiktok lydia any last words i just love you i love you so much (laughs) guys one of my favorite we love you ever you guys are amazing thank you so much for you are amazing yes we absolutely love you and cannot wait to see what else you do so yeah thank you so much for joining us today costanza and goodbye